We're back to being a normal country. We're back to being a country. The British Dream Podcast. No, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. We need a new intro. The British Dream. The British Dream. That's better. Welcome to The British Dream, the politics podcast that's apparently sponsored by the Conservative Party. My name is Simon Child, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. Just me and Weatherspeeds this week. Blame the cuts. This week's been such a shit show that we felt the need to put a special podcast together. Conference season is really just a chance for politicians to show themselves for who they really are. In their own safe space, surrounded by soft furnishings and their best frenemies. The British dream that has inspired generations. Try to calm down. That dream is what I believe in. And behave like an adult. Has there ever been such a brilliant creative masterstroke? Our beloved leader, Theresa May, has helped boost our podcast listening figures this week by giving us repeated name checks during her conference speech. Theresa, I didn't realise you were such a fan. Uh, no, actually what happened was, the British dream was a phrase first used by Michael Howard, who's a failed Tory leader from when I was a teenager. And then it's been kind of bubbling around t- Tory circles for a while. Obviously it's a, a nod to the American dream. And I thought it was just kind of weird and ironic basically fucking bullshit so I used it to name this podcast and now Theresa May in her main conference speech referenced it again and again and again thrusting it to the political mainstream and um, weirdly giving the name of this podcast a new relevance Uh, but on the British Dream this week we're going to be chatting to Solomon Hughes he's a journalist for Vice and Private Eye he's been going to conferences since things can only get better snooping around looking for the corporate bullshit that washes over our politics. You know, like in all politics, some of it's a bit dull and repetitive, but there's so much of it that once you get sick of one and dull and repetitive thing, you can go to another one. <laughs> but before that... I, I hope you notice that, ladies and gentlemen, the Chancellor giving something away free. <laughs> <coughs> and we... <coughs> Shows what good the Chancellor's cough sweet is. It was like any normal Wednesday at Tory conference. The karaoke bars had been cleared out and the sticky smell of Chateau Neuf de Pape faded. Theresa May took the stage. This was never going to be an easy speech. In fact, it was supposed to be a career-saving barnstormer. Brexit, a failed election and the knives sharpening behind her back were always going to make it difficult. She started with an apology. We did not get the victory we wanted because our national campaign fell short. It was too scripted, too presidential, and it allowed the Labour Party to paint us as the voice of continuity when the public wanted to hear a message of change. I hold my hands up for that. I take responsibility, I led the campaign, and I am sorry. But after a reasonable enough 15 minutes, it all went completely wrong. Prankster Lee Nelson handed her a P45, which she weirdly took. Then she started coughing and spluttering, rendering most of her speech almost inaudible. And then the sign behind her started falling apart, and so did she. The thick of it, Veep, Yes Minister, you name it. No satirist could ever actually write this because it all felt so unbelievable. It was like a metaphor for her entire leadership, so perfect that it makes my job almost too easy. But let's look beyond the shaky performance. Everyone's dissected that to death now. Let's look at the actual meat of what she said. Because a poor performance actually covered up what would have been a deeply average speech anyway that offered basically nothing. That's why I've always taken on vested interests 
when they're working against the interests of the people. Called out those who abuse their positions of power and given a voice to those who have been ignored or silenced for too long. And when people ask me why I put myself through it, the long hours, the pressure, the criticism, the insults that inevitably go with this job, I tell them this. I do it to root out injustice and to give everyone in our country a voice. And that's why, when I reflect on my time in politics, the things that made me, make me proud are not the positions I've held, the world leaders I've met, the great global gatherings I've attended, but knowing that I made a difference, that I helped those who couldn't be heard. Okay, so she was trying to remind us like why she's actually in politics, because I guess most people forgot. And there was this bit of the speech entitled What I'm In This For, in which she listed several sort of social justice achievements that apparently she's had, uh, and then repeated the line, I think it was eight times, saying, that's what I'm in this for. That's what I'm in this for every time. But all the claims were, like, pretty wild. Like the victims and survivors of child sexual abuse, ignored for years by people in positions of power, now on the long road to the truth. That's what I'm in this for. Totally weird thing to be claiming as a sort of great success of your leadership. Um, the inquiry into child sexual abuse is a total farce that has gone from like failure to failure. I think it's been, I think it's on its fourth chair. And recently a survivors group said that it's not fit for purpose. But apparently that's what I'm in this for, Teresa. And that same commitment is the reason why one of my first acts as Prime Minister was to establish the groundbreaking racial disparity audit investigating how a person's race affects their treatment by public services so that we can take action and respond. Like Alexander Paul, a young man who came to this conference three years ago to tell his story. The story of a young black boy growing up in modern Britain, who with, without causing any trouble, without doing anything wrong, found himself being stopped and searched by people in authority time and time and time again. Alexander spoke so eloquently about this experience and how he came to mistrust those in positions of power as a result. So, inspired by his example, we took action. We shook up the system and the number of black people being stopped and searched has fallen by over two thirds. I'm... Order! So here she's talking about uh, the number of black people being stopped and searched falling. I mean, fine, so maybe some progress has been made there, but it really feels like resting on your laurels here when there's still a lot of work to do and st still a lot of really high-profile police racism happening. And it's why after seeing the unimaginable tragedy unfold at Grenfell Tower, I was determined that we should get to the truth. Yeah, then she talks about Grenfell, which is, again, just bizarre, because the only thing she should be doing in relation to Grenfell is apologising. I don't know if anyone remembers how she completely failed to respond to that situation after it happened. She visited the site but didn't talk to anyone there. 
the local Tory council seemingly took forever to take the situation seriously and was just treating people with a fairly obvious contempt. And then her major point is that the public inquiry is going to find justice. Well, I guess we'll wait and see. Um, certain community groups have already suggested a boycott, uh, as well as the Fire Brigade Union, I believe, is threatening a boycott. So, you know, the jury is out on that one. Because Grenfell should never have happened and should never be allowed to happen again. So we must learn the lessons, understanding not just what went wrong, but why the voice of the people of Grenfell had been ignored over so many years. That's what the public inquiry will do. And where any individual or organisation is found to have acted negligently, justice must be done. OK, so that was her boasting about her sort of dubious past achievements. But what does she actually offer for, like, the future? Well, the kind of three main areas people are talking about were energy, uh, student debt and tuition fees, and the housing crisis. Um, on energy, she promised an energy cap on the prices. I mean, that's a policy stolen from Labour. I think under Miliband he had that, and he got called a sort of crazy Marxist for it. So it's interesting how the political centre ground has shifted so far that Theresa May is now doing a policy that the Daily Mail called Marxist a few years ago. Then you've got the cap on tuition fees, which is a hugely generous concession to the young. It's going to save young people 360 quid, which is cool. Um, Jeremy Corbyn was offering to scrap tuition fees entirely, which is kind of cooler. <laughs> There's questions over whether Corbyn would actually do that, but in terms of messaging, it's pretty obvious. And also, to get a bit more into the detail, Theresa May said she was going to freeze tuition fees while they held a review into university funding. So, OK, a review, brilliant, what's that going to do? And then that also seems to kind of put a date on when they're going to potentially raise them again. So we can look forward to the end of a review that will bring probably not very much and then they'll rise again. We will scrap the increase in fees that was due next year and freeze the maximum rate while the review takes place. And we will increase the amount graduates can earn before they start repaying their fees to £25,000 putting money back into the pockets of graduates with high levels of debt. For while we are... <laughs> Order! And then the big one was housing, where Theresa May said, I will dedicate my premiership to fixing this problem, to restoring hope, to renewing the British dream for a new generation of people. And because it will take time for greater house building to translate into more affordable house prices, we've introduced schemes like Help to Buy to support people who are struggling right now. But the election result showed us that this is not nearly enough. We've listened and we've learned. So that's a pretty bold claim. She's going to dedicate her premiership to fixing this problem. So how's she going to do that? Well, for starters, uh, the Chancellor announced a further £10 billion investment in Help to Buy. Sorry, what? £10 billion in Help to Buy? That's an extra £10 billion from the magic money tree into a policy that just inflates the housing market, subsidises a small number of middle-class aspirants and basically doesn't fix any structural problems in, in the housing market in this country. And if anything, just makes them worse. So she's dedicating her life to this. It's like, please, please stop. You're just making it fucking worse. Um, she also announced two billion extra for affordable housing, which just seems like kind of unambitious for someone who's going to dedicate her premiership to solving this problem. I mean, the context is, you know, a massive, massive shortage of social homes, a completely ridiculous rental market, um, people spending over half their wages on on their, on their rent, uh, and developers just gaming the system, and uh, houses being sort of weird investments in the sky. 
And so basically two billion is sort of staggeringly unambitious and seems unlikely that it's going to really address this sort of huge chronic national crisis that we've got. And it's, it was also just really short on detail. How are we going to build these new homes? Are we going to demolish any current council homes in the meantime? feels like probably we will, given the way that development tends to go in this country. So, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't hold out too much hope for Theresa May's huge claim to solve the housing crisis. It won't be quick or easy. But as Prime Minister, I'm going to make it my mission to solve this problem, and I'll take personal charge of the government's response and make the British dream a reality by reigniting home ownership in Britain once again. So, yeah, that's housing. Um, so, I mean, what do we make of Theresa May's British dream? Well, as a piece of rhetoric, the British dream obviously refers to the American dream. Work hard, play by the rules, then prosperity awaits. Obviously, as, as an idea, and being from America, that's tied to the idea of migration, coming over from the old country and making good in a new place, which is a really vile thing to hear from someone who, as Home Secretary, was completely obsessed with making Britain a, quote, hostile environment for migrants. The person who introduced racist vans onto our streets, who made coming to this country complete, completely shit and a sort of horrible nightmare. And then what about the rest of us? What about this dream? Well, she's got not a lot to show for her time in office so far. And while we didn't get into her every policy promise in this podcast, basically the detail of what she's promising is completely uninspiring. She may have been coughing and spluttering, and that's what everyone's talking about, but it kind of covered up the fact that she's got so little to offer anyway. It may have been a shit show performance, but let's be honest, it was a shit show speech and a shit show offer for people like you and me. It might be the British dream, but it's not my dream. <coughs> Public sector working together. <coughs> Why we will never and we <coughs> spreading prosperity to <coughs> no. I almost can't bear to listen to any more of that. I was actually there at the conference centre in Manchester and while the sort of summary news reports make it seem sort of quite funny and a little bit excruciating. Bear in mind, it was maybe like 25 minutes, half an hour of this coughing and spluttering. And it honestly was just difficult to watch and you wanted it to end and ended up with this very strange feeling of pity for Theresa May, just willing her to the end. And man, it was torture. Uh, but I've actually been to both the major party conferences this autumn, the Blues and the Reds. For anyone who's never been to a political party conference, I've got to say they're pretty shit. The Labour one had elements of something quite interesting going on with the world transformed and momentum, trying to form a politics where people actually talk to each other and have opinions, and that's politics. But the rest of it is a lot of theatre, a lot of spin, a lot of corporate influence. It's a party, but not a very good one. To a large extent, the conferences are cut off from everything that's ever felt important. They're full of interest groups and uninterested audiences. Old men plotting for next year. Leadership chatter. It sucks. But one guy who can't get enough of this is Solomon Hughes. He writes for Vice, he writes for Private Eye as well. I spoke to him at one of the Tory conferences, many boozy corporate receptions. 
I've done this same story now for um, you know 17 years. It's not the only story I do, but the main one is just to try and get a sense of the political lobbying that's happening, uh, which tends to appear more obviously on the fringe, to see where money is being spent. Uh, so in terms of the way the party conferences work, I think there is a, such a thing as a political party. It's quite a significant part of our life, and, and a good thing in some ways. Both parties, I'm very much a Labour supporter, but I think both parties are a good thing because they bring together groups in society to negotiate uh, change. They represent interests in society. Uh, a very broad brush, the Labour Party represents trade unions and working people more. Uh, the Conservative Party represents uh, middle-class people more. Uh, but they also, on top of these political organisations, which is sort of ordinary people trying to debate how they run the world, comes this huge corporate caravan. I remember when I first saw this in 2000 around the Labour Party, because it was New Labour and all that, it was like this weird business fair had been nailed onto a political conference. It didn't look like it fitted, but it was just there. It's like the moneylenders in the temple, but no Jesus figure came to kick them out or turn over the, the tables. See the meeting sponsored by someone and see what message they're trying to get across. What are their, you know, PR talk, what are their key messages they want to get across. Some of it is behind closed doors because there are invitation-only meetings or meetings under what's called Chatham House rules. So some of it literally is behind closed doors. Sometimes I've blacked my way into them and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's awkward and embarrassing. Like classic one, think tank. They go along and they'll say, oh, look, here's a think tank is having a meeting about... Um, Oh, I don't know. Let's hope, say it's a, a think tank having a meeting about whether we need more nuclear reactors. And they just report it as that. And they don't notice that it's the think tank is sponsored by Nuclear Reactor Corporation. Uh, you know, really obvious, basic stuff. And some think tanks now are a little bit more open about the funding. And you can just work it out by looking at so when they hold a meeting, they stick their name all over it. Uh, think tanks do show a kind of politics, which is the one where you have professionalised politicians, which are uh, spads, lobbyists and uh, think tank kind of um, geeky kind of characters is the idea. And it is funded by, every time you come back to it, it's funded by major corporations, financial institutions and occasionally a rogue rich person. And you've, you've been coming to these things for a while and were you, you're kind of saying did, were you saying you sort of saw the moment where these think tanks and this kind of corporate bandwagon showed up? Um, no, I think I started going at the point it did show up. So I, I'm not, a, you know, I can't be totally sure because I started in the new Labour years and I started with the Labour conferences. Uh, but it definitely grew. I mean, it definitely the kind of trade fair atmosphere and the corporate atmosphere and, and the uh, funded think tank atmosphere definitely uh, grew in that period. And it also it's interesting, it gives you a sense you know... You, it waxes and wanes how many people from the sort of lobbying type, think tanky type area turn up. Uh, and it gives you a sense of how serious that group of people think that party is. If a party's in power, everyone turns up. But if a party is out of power, but maybe they, all those people who've got a bit of money think they're going to win an election, they do turn up. They definitely all turn up for New Labour. Um, they kind of kept faith with the Conservatives in opposition, but you know, sometimes you know, not quite so much. Um, you had a, a very, uh, during the Miliband uh, years of Labour, uh, the caravan wasn't pitching up. There were less funded meetings, there was uh, uh, 
you know, less uh, banks, financial institutions, welfare corporations, uh, because I guess they just thought Labour was very, very far, far from power. You had a really interesting effect this year in that all those people understood that Labour is close to power, so they all turned up, but they found it very hard to get in touch with the actual people who run Labour. So, I mean, just a trivial example, uh, Coca-Cola, they're all over the conferences. I think they've got something in their mind about recycling. So Coca-Cola have put money into a Labour business reception. Great big Coca-Cola banner, it's pretty damn obvious. Uh, introduction by the guy from Coca-Cola telling us how Coca-Cola is really good and not horrible at all and everything's nice about it. Uh, and then it's like, and, and I'm speaking uh, next and uh, Jen John McDonald's going to come and talk. And I was kind of waiting because I thought it'd be great to have a picture of John McDonald in front of a Coca-Cola banner, presumably saying something bad about Coca-Cola because that's what you do or say, am I going to tax you or something? Uh, but actually just didn't turn up. And so everyone was just set around. I mean, the other Labour figures turned up sort of much, much less than no one near the shadow cabinet. So you had business really reaching out in its traditional way through sponsorship of organisations and meetings and then just, you know, being sat there left on their own whistling. So that was interesting. And, and last year, um, the sort of corporate bandwagon didn't really turn up to the Labour conference, right? Because they, they thought, oh, they're a joke. They're so far from power. And this year you've got them turning up again. But it being slightly... I don't know, weirded out maybe by turning turning up to like a sort of old Labour conference and not knowing what to do with themselves. I think well, I think the problem is is that they're used to. Uh having a negotiation where they talk to a party through third parties but they organize the party it's their you know they put on the uh, drinks and things like that and um, you know it's like if they're in charge of the nibbles they control the conversation I guess is the idea uh, they are they were struggling to do that at Labour's uh, conference but I think actually what they should do is just approach the party directly and talk on the party's terms if they say can I come to your office and talk to you of course I'll be fine about it but then they'll be the ones sitting in the waiting room say when the shadow uh, chancellor or the shadow minister for x y or z is available and i think they're not comfortable with that they want to be the host of the party because they feel they you know they would control the atmosphere of it which is really basic sort of business school stuff i'm sure they all practice doing really firm handshakes as well but that's 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 what's going on i think mm. and do you i mean this might be getting a bit theoretical and, and difficult to answer but do you think um organizations like momentum and the world transformed and stuff having seen this stuff happen for a while do you think that can constrain um, the kind of corporate beasts yeah I think they're just alternative circles of power I mean I think it, it always was inherent in the Labour Party that you had other institutions and the principal one you had that survived were well actually there are two sets of institutional places of power that kept the Labour Party from just becoming a sort of liberal capitalist party even though that's Blair wanted it to be uh, the first was uh, the trade unions uh, they're, they're organizations of their own they have their own money they have their own members they can make things happen uh, so they if they you know and if it's just at this crude level of meetings if they held a big meeting it sort of was incumbent on at least somebody from the upper echelons of the party to turn up and take part in that debate so by their institutional power they could bring these people along the other set of institutions is councils uh, now councils are interesting because that is a seat of power that's um, not radical because councils aren't allowed to be radical. In the 80s, and I can, you know, I'm old enough to actually remember this, in the 
Greens. When Labour was out of national power, councils were a centre of slightly radical power. Uh, even people like David Blunkett run slightly radical, only as radical in the sense of providing cheap uh, buses and having a good political position. Uh, councils can't, are much more constrained, they can't do that, but they're still a slightly different centre of power uh, from the purely corporate sector. They still rely on garnering votes and popular appeal. Uh, so those are two, cent two pillars in the Labour Party that keep it in a certain institutional way, uh, which is to say um, social democracy, a, a small c conservative left, uh, which was being sort of slightly, uh, well, a lot under pressure in the Blair years from a sort of new liberal uh, set of institutions that the Blairites were trying to create and bring into the party. Uh, so it's the opposite of that. Uh, what you've got is uh, potentially, and they, I think they've been quite canny about this, the sort of momentum type left in Labour, is they're not just saying we want to do uh, this and we believe in that position. They're creating institutions, uh, which gives you a slightly more stronger base. It means you can't get knocked off uh, your feet uh, so quickly. Uh, you know, and they don't have to be... They, they, they did a good job. It's quite impressive that they could organise these very large meetings with a high level of debate uh, by the simple procedures of charging a modest ticket price and having it in a relatively shabby hall. Uh, whereas the, uh, so the think tanks only believe they can have any influence by having a smart hotel room and having chicken legs or like uh, sometimes a little tarts with goat's cheese in or something like that. That is how they believe that, that you get influence. So that was Solomon Hughes, writer for Vice and Private Eye. Let us fulfil our duty to the British people. Let us fulfil our duty to our country. Let us fulfil our duty to Britain. And let us renew the British dream. Thanks, Theresa. You've totally smashed it on the PR and promotion for this pod. The British dream will forever be etched onto the brains of everyone who can be bothered to stay engaged with what you're up to. The British Dream, the podcast, not the speech, was produced by Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. We'll be back in a while, I'll say. Stay positive. Even you, Tories. Keep your chins up. <laughs>